0: This is We Lead, presented by Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. The women who lead JSI's global health programs come from all walks of life. Their stories are as diverse as the countries where they work and the people they serve. In this series, we'll hear from women in leadership at JSI to learn more about their personal and professional journeys and what they've discovered along the way.
1: I'm Sita Strother, a Program Coordinator for JSI's International Division. Thanks for tuning in. Today on We Lead, we're talking with Wuleta Betamariam. Wuleta is the new director of JSI's Center for Healthy Women, Children and Communities and has more than 20 years of experience leading public health programs. In her previous role, Wuleta was JSI's country representative in Ethiopia and project director for the Last 10 Kilometers project. Before joining JSI, Wuleta was the deputy director of Engender Health's program division in New York, where she provided strategic direction and oversight of country and global programs. She established Engender Health's presence in Ethiopia, a program in Sudan, and was the country director for two countries. Wuleta has also been a technical advisor for USAID's Population Health and Nutrition Office, where she focused on reproductive health. Wulecha holds a Master of Public Health and Public Policy from the University of Michigan. She is now in her final year of a doctoral program in public health leadership at the University of Illinois. Uleta joins us today from Addis Ababa. Hi, Wuleta. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Sita, and um, thank you for the generous introduction. So I know you've just stepped into the role of director for the Center for Healthy Women, Children and Communities at JSI and the center is definitely lucky to have you. What are you
2: most excited about in this new role? I feel very lucky to land in such an important position at JSI. As you just said, my engagement with JSI for the past 14 years has been at the country level, specifically in Ethiopia, where I served as a project director for the last 10 kilometers project, in addition to being the country rep over the last four years for JSI in Ethiopia. So I've worked very closely with the Ministry of Health through the project, especially to strengthen the link between families, communities, and the primary healthcare system for improved uh, reproductive, maternal, and newborn and child health outcomes. And leading L10K has been one of the most fulfilling journeys of my life. It's allowed me and my team to contribute to the transformation of the health sector through bringing learnings and lessons from the ground, And it has enabled us to be at the seat, at the decision-making seat, to uh, inform and influence national strategies, programs, and policies, and really ultimately improve the lives of our fellow Ethiopians throughout the country. And what excites me about this new position is the platform it provides to be part of the global health discourse and help shape the global health programs and strategies and policies through sharing our thought leadership at the global level as well as evidences and lessons from the ground in the area of reproductive maternal newborn child health. And this new position, I believe, will be a great platform to amplify the voices from the ground for the global good.
1: And it sounds like this position is now at more of a global level. Is there anything that you'll miss about working more closely
2: with countries? Absolutely. I know that I'm going to be missing working at the ground level, where you know you see the change happening right in front of your eyes, you're part of the change, and when you're a little bit removed working at the home office level, I would think that I would miss you know feeling part of what's happening with the team that I've had, as I said, working very close with health workers, with communities more directly than I would be able to with the new position. But what the new position provides me with is a perspective of many, many countries, rather than focusing on one country. So the learnings and the evidences and the lessons that I hope i will be able to bring up to the global level will enable us to influence global policies and programs.
1: So let's talk a bit more about how you got to this point. I know you started out by studying and working in international development more broadly, but what drew you to focus in on public health and reproductive health in
2: particular? So actually, my work throughout the, my career over the last 20 plus years has been in public health. As an undergrad, I studied international relations and African studies and French, though my French skills are barely existent now. And then joined University of Michigan's Institute for Public Policy, which is now the Ford School of Public Policy for my master's. My intent at that stage was definitely to work in public service in the international arena. And my interest from being a diplomat to engaging in human rights, immigration policy, and those types of public service areas. And public health honesty or reproductive health was not really in my thoughts until I took a course. I think I believe it was the second semester of my first year in graduate school. And I remember the course was on population policy, taught by two highly regarded professors at the School of Public Health at, again, University of Michigan, Professor Jason Finkel and Alison McIntosh. And this was in the spring of 1992, if I remember correctly, when there was a hot and intense debate in the international arena on population and development between those who believed in demographic targets, which is arguing um, slowing population growth through birth control family planning as a means to achieve, you know, sort of government numerical targets and those that argued for reproductive health, individual rights and women empowerment. And um, I know you're pretty young and you might not remember Mm -hmm. or you might have heard about it, but (laughs) this was in preparation for the 1994 Cairo Conference for Population on development, and it was a really a watershed moment for reproductive health and rights. So then, as a young woman, and especially as a, a young African woman, I was absolutely drawn into this debate. It was like, who decides on whose body? Why would government have to say anything about my reproductive choice? Why am I seen as a target and not as a woman who has the right to choose? And from that point on, reproductive health and reproductive rights for women became my cause, my passion. And I suppose I can say that it was a watershed moment for me as well as for women's reproductive health and rights. That sounds like a
1: really powerful moment to be a part of. And you mentioned also being a young African woman in that space. Did you see many other people who looked
2: like you and had similar backgrounds in your class? Honestly speaking, there are not that many people that looked like me or uh, that came from the same uh, background at the University of Michigan. As diverse as the undergraduate, especially, population was, it was not that diverse, but relatively from the previous school that I came from, where I did my undergrad, the University of Michigan was a bit more diverse, but definitely I was, especially in public policy, one of the odd ones out I think public health had more of a global students, especially because I focused on the international health and then what was called population planning departments. Did you feel like that affected
1: the way that you engaged in that space at all? No,
2: I, I mean, I was pretty conscious of where I came from and where other people came from, but I don't think it affected the way that I engaged with people or I engaged with my professors or engaged with the school community. I was definitely aware that I was different, but in terms of that difference in terms of engagement was pretty minimal, I would say. My undergrad was totally different because during my undergrad years, I felt like a sore thumb. Really? I stuck out. I was in an honors program in um, what they call James Madison College at Michigan State University, where I think probably I was one of probably two or three Black students out of a thousand. And people, you know, um, always assume the worst. People would question if you really belonged in an honor school as a Black woman, as an African woman, um, as a woman, and especially one that came from Ethiopia. That does sound challenging, but also...
1: It sounds like you had a lot of perseverance to, despite that, still thrive in that environment and go on to do your graduate degree
2: in international development, public health. I had a good community, not at the undergrad level, but at the graduate level. There are a lot of Africans, Ethiopians, people from different parts of the continent that were there for their graduate school. So I bonded with them and I think it made me grow perhaps a lot quicker than a usual undergrad life. And I see it as a positive. So
1: now, flash forward to returning back to Ethiopia after having moved to the U.S. and going back as a Michigan fellow with USAID. What was it like for you to return home after so many years in the
2: States? You know, the time in the 1970s in Ethiopia, I don't know if you're familiar with Ethiopia's history and politics But somewhere in between the 70s and 90s, a large number of Ethiopians that had the opportunity to leave the country left Ethiopia during the Derg's military regime. Many families sent their children abroad because of the fear of what could happen. Then my sister and I were both sent to the U.S., both for education and also to escape, honestly, the dark situation that was happening in the country. And uh, most of us did not know if and when we would ever be back to our homeland. Uh, We all yearned to go back home. So for me to be able to have gone back home in 1993, which was pretty much immediately after the overthrow of the military regime, was really a godsend opportunity. And I came back home as a Michigan fellow, as you said, and was posted at USAID Ethiopia's health population and nutrition section and USAID at that time was reestablishing its presence in Ethiopia after almost 20 years. And that really enabled me to be part of shaping and managing USAID's strategic investment and engagement in the reproductive health sector. I just want to mention someone that I feel like gave me this huge platform that basically kicked off my career. And that is uh, Victor Barbiero, who was the chief HBN at USAID Ethiopia. He is actually the one who gave me this amazing opportunity that was key for my professional life. He might not be listening to the podcast, but hopefully if someone that knows him is listening to the podcast, please let him know that Wuletabi Maryam gave him a shout out for giving me a huge opportunity uh, many, many moons ago. The circumstances of uh, how I met Victor is a bit funny. So this was immediately after my graduate school. I had moved to D.C., And I was working as a consultant at the Futures Group on a project called the Options Project, which actually brought two of my interests, public policy and reproductive health, together. I was hired by this amazing woman, Janet Smith, and the job was to basically do research and write a policy paper on integrated versus vertical family planning programs. And it's funny that it's still an issue that we still contend with almost 30 years later. So doing that during the day, in the evenings, I waitressed at a place called Cafe La Roche in Georgetown uh, to m- uh, make ends meet uh, and waiting for my placement as a Michigan fellow. It normally takes up to six months to about a year once you're accepted as a fellow to be placed. So uh, one um, evening in July, I was waiting on a large table of mostly men and a few women, and I was going back and forth you know, getting them drinks, their food, and refilling their water again and again and again. And I did a little overhearing and figured your high-level USAID personnel. So somehow, uh, I mustered some courage and struck a conversation with them that I had just graduated with a master's in public health and public policy and that I've been accepted as a Michigan fellow. And I'm dying to get a placement in Africa. And believe it or not, a year later, that conversation at Cafe LaRouche landed me a fellowship at USAID Ethiopia. Victor Barbiero was part of that group. And he really was instrumental in creating the fellowship position and offering me the position if I was interested
1: Wow, that's an amazing story. It just goes to show you, you never know, you know, who's yeah. sitting right next to you. It it takes me back to my
2: own waitressing days. There's a saying in Ethiopia, and I'll say it in Amharic and translate it. And it's a saying that I really believe in. It goes like, which literally translates to, without asking, you'll not be a general. So it's a huge lesson of life. I mean, when you get that opportunity, yes, definitely, I had to go in and go for it. And I'm so glad I did. And basically, all this to say that returning back home was a huge opportunity. And I was actually one of the first returnees from my peers. And um, even though I didn't do it purposefully, I hope that I've inspired others to brave it out and come back to Ethiopia to um, contribute to the growth and development of the country. It sounds like
1: working with people and communities is so important to you, and building those personal relationships, whether they be mentorships or in collaboration with communities, has, has really guided your career. Is there any other person or experience that has really inspired you or motivated you or even made you think differently about a
2: problem? There are many people that I've met in my life that have inspired me, that have motivated me and uh, helped me look at things differently. Who I'm always in awe of are you know, the community health extension workers that I've been able to meet and develop strong relationships with over the past decade of my life. So the health extension workers in Ethiopia are uh, frontline health workers and they provide preventive, promotive, and um, some curative care throughout the country and mostly in uh, remote places. I think at this point, there are about 40,000 health extension workers, most of whom, if not all, are women. And they work tirelessly to provide service to their communities. You know, the terrain in Ethiopia is no joke. It's very, very difficult. And these health extension workers walk for three hours, four hours on rugged terrain to immunize children, to provide contraception to women who want to plan their family, to provide prenatal care for pregnant women or postnatal care for newborns to diagnose and treat illness such as malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia. They do this every day, day in and day out. Day in and day out, they show up. Rain or shine, good day or bad day, they show up. And they show up to serve their communities. And they've made such a huge difference in the lives of women and children throughout the country. And for me, What more could be inspiring and motivating than having the privilege to work alongside this amazing, amazing women? And I can imagine, too, with this
1: pandemic, it's really taken a toll on so many of us, but especially the frontline health workers. Was there ever a time in in this recent period that you've felt hopeless or felt like giving up? and, And
2: how did you work through that? I'm not the kind of person who feels hopeless. I would say perhaps growing up in a country like Ethiopia makes us or most people to always be hopeful, resilient, that you know brighter days are there. So honestly, I can't pinpoint on a time that I felt completely hopeless, either through the pandemic or um, the current unfortunate events that are happening in Ethiopia. I'm the kind of person that basically says, let's move forward, let's find solutions. And I try to align myself with people that look at the glass half full and look for solutions and learn from the experience. I think if I can share one big lesson from my life in terms of challenges, failures or mistakes, is that you should take it as an opportunity for learning So taking a step back from your
1: public health career, um, it would be great to get to know you a bit more as, as a person outside of your job. How do you think your friends and family would
2: describe you? I think my kids would say that I am very persistent, but loving and giving mother and they might even say that I'm low-key annoying <laughs> and perhaps that I'm too busy. I was too busy, especially as they were growing up, to take part in some of their um, extracurricular activities. The reason I say this is because it's an ongoing debate between uh, myself and my, especially my son, who had many, many, many extracurricular activities you know, after school and me being busy with work. I know that I missed quite a bit, so they would say that I was extremely busy. But what I know for sure is that my kids are really grateful that they had the opportunity to grow up in Ethiopia, uh, rooted in their culture, which gives them a great grounding and belongingness. Uh, We're about to move, actually, to another country in 2007-2008, which would have made their lives totally different, so I'm really grateful and super-blessed have so been given the opportunity to raise them in Ethiopia. And a super blessing is also having had the opportunity to be close to my parents, especially as they grew older. You know, being close to them, uh, being by their side, was a blessing that I know a lot of their peers didn't have. Because, as I said earlier, most children were out of the country. For me to have been there, I think, was a huge opportunity. Though I'm sure they would say that they wish they saw me more. And with my friends, I think it's a mixed back, but I think a common description would be that I'm sort of a connector, an anchor for my friends. I think they would say that I am empathetic, I'm a decent listener with a decent sense of humor, but a very, very bad voice. Though I love to sing out loud when we hang out together at home. (laughs) (laughs) Do you do karaoke ever? So, you know, there's not been an opportunity for us to do karaoke in Ethiopia, but I wish I did. I I actually I did a karaoke once for uh, a JSI event with our PO at that time, Heather McPherson. I think I did Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive in front of Joel Lampstein, a whole bunch of <laughs> JSI folks. You know, my voice is really bad. But you know, it's my passion, and I love to sing, especially along with you know old Ethiopian music or eighties music. So they've always they always have to bear with me. I even laugh when I hear my voice. Oh, I bet you're underselling
1: it. Oh
2: no 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 no! <laughs> I'm not. I'm sure they'll crack up when they hear this. So there's there's no way I
1: can convince you to sing a little bit on this podcast. Oh my god, are you kidding me? People will
2: be like, ah. Oh. Turn it off,
1: turn it off. Do you have a favorite
2: Ethiopian artist or singer? I have a few. Muluk al-Melesa, Mahmoud Amud, Talahunga Sese. All these are all men, but Gigi, or okay, woman. The older ones I like, the Katama. Those are the ones that I usually listen to and the ones that I like. Do your children share your love of music and singing? Unfortunately, not, we don't listen to the same music. But actually, I mean, there are some that we do share. a Boy, there you go. Now I'm hip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're lucky to have a mom as cool as you. <laughs> so what is your greatest hope for your children?
2: My greatest hope for, for my children is that they live a purposeful and meaningful life, whatever they end up doing. I'm really blessed to have kids that have you know done pretty okay for their age in terms of schooling as well as starting their career. You know, at the end of the day, what I want them to have is a really happy, happy life surrounded with love. And then I hope that the world that they inherit and the world that their children live in will be much more peaceful and inclusive which seems to be like a tall order these days with what's going on in the world. And going back to public health
1: for a moment, what is your biggest concern for the future of reproductive, maternal, newborn and child health?
2: So if we keep 2013 perspective, uh, most countries in Africa and some in South Asia are tremendously off track to achieving the Sustainable Development Goals including universal coverage for reproductive maternal newborn and child health indicators, which is one of the goals stated by the SDGs. I know we've made significant progress over the past decade in improving access to essential health services, and that has ultimately contributed to reducing maternal and child mortality globally. But despite the progress, hundreds of millions of women, children, and newborns have been and still are left behind. You know, I would like to quote the late Dr. Farmer because this, for me, is one of the most incredible truths. And I quote the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with this world. We need to work towards ensuring that quality healthcare is universal and accessible to women, children, and newborns, and it should not matter where they live or what their economic status is. And we need to make sure that this goes beyond the rhetoric and we need to make it actionable. I couldn't agree more. And I think there's more attention now to health equity, but still
1: have so far to go. Yes,
2: a lot more to go. It's very interesting that COVID showed us how somewhat fragile the health systems in the U.S. are, especially in some areas. I think that was a rude awakening for people that are working in public health in the U.S. And having experienced both health systems, what are some
1: of the ways that the U.S. could learn from a country like Ethiopia? I think
2: there are many things that one can learn from each other, but I would say the focus on community health and trying to make healthcare as equitable as possible and being able to provide services closest to where people live, especially for the vulnerable population, I think is the most critical lesson that one can learn that's what Ethiopia has done and you know not fully knowing how the community health system is within the U.S. I would think that one of the things that would address inequity could be by ensuring that you know the health system actually goes to folks that are not going to the health system for care.
1: Well to end on a hopeful note what is one thing that has
2: inspired you in this past year? So, what inspired me most this past year, uh, perhaps, is how um, communities come together to support each other during difficult times. And I think we've been able to see this somewhat globally with COVID. So, for me, um, 2021 was probably one of the toughest years that I've had. I lost a few loved ones. I had a horrible COVID illness myself and the aftermath was even more disastrous. However, despite how low my spirit was, the unwavering support that I got from my community and my community includes my family, my close friends, my L10K colleagues who I call my L10K family, even JSI friends in Boston and DC were all inspiration. And, you know, this community is what undoubtedly gave me and helped me to push forward and to some extent even thrive. Look at me now. I mean, at 50 something, I'm starting a brand new journey and the support and inspiration from, you know, from the people that I have within my community has helped me get to where I am.
1: This has been a wonderful conversation.
2: Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much, Sita. This was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of We Lead, presented by Voices of Public Health, the JSI podcast. We'd love to know what you thought of today's conversation. Connect with us at JSI Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And share the episode if you liked what you heard. To learn more about JSI's work to improve health outcomes for all, visit our website at jsi.com.